On the 21st of February this year, Billy Graham, the American evangelist, died at the grand old age of 99. In decades of ministry, he preached the gospel to millions. Some estimates put it at more than 200 million people. He was an advisor to presidents and to monarchs. And to one and all, he preached a simple message. You must be born again. In sports stadiums, as early as the 1950s, he reminded people that they were sinners, and he asked them, will you repent of your sin? Of course, that long ago, that was very familiar language which people would understand. It was the language of the day. It was mentioned in schools. People knew about it. But what was he really asking them? I guess we could sum it up one way by saying this. Will you acknowledge that God's ways as shown in the Bible are the right ways to live? But equally, tough one this, that your own ways of living are wrong. Tougher still, he asked them, will you accept that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, the only way to be right with God? And then he said, if so, will you turn away from the way that you are living your life now? That's called repentance. And will you devote yourself? Don't just give a, an intellectual assent. Will you devote yourself to living God's way as taught in the Bible, for that is the sign of real repentance. And then will you do it, not in your own strength, for you do not have that strength, but will you do it in God's strength, seeking that help from Him? In short, He asked them, will you repent of your sin? Will you turn away from it? And if so, you may recall that His manner that he asked them to adopt was to come forward in the meeting to show that they meant it. There was nothing more special about coming forward. It was just to show that they meant it. And many people, not under the call of Billy Graham, but under the call of God, came forward to show that they meant it. They wanted to do business with God, and they were ready to repent of their sin. Well, over the next four decades, Billy Graham returned to the United Kingdom for many, many more evangelistic campaigns, the last one actually being quite some time ago in 1991 in Glasgow. But at each of them, he preached the same gospel and the same message. Will you repent of your sin? If so, come forward to show that you mean it. Well, today in the second uh, decade of the 21st century, we seem to have fallen out of love with uh, such approaches. Perhaps we've outgrown such behavior. Although I note that his grandson, Will Graham, uh, was in uh, Falkirk for three nights last month with a celebration event there. Don't worry, by the way. I'm not going to ask you to come forward at the end of the evening. But I do still want to put to you that age-old need. You must be born again. I still want to put to you that age-old question. Will you, will you 
repent of your sin. And I want to do that, and to do that with you as we look together at the passage which Colin read for us a few moments ago, Luke chapter 15. For we find there from verse 11 onwards what is for many people a well-known parable, usually called the prodigal son, probably better called the lost son. And actually, as we look and concentrate on that, I do want us to notice that it was, of course, the third of three parables which Jesus taught. If you look quickly at verse 3, Jesus told them this parable, and then one is told. And then at verse 8, or suppose, and a second one is told, until we come to verse 11, Jesus continued, and a third parable is told. And did you notice that they are all focused on the same issue, that of finding that which is lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son? But more than this, the focus is not merely on the simplicity of being lost and then being found. No, by these parables of Jesus, we are able to learn two important things. The first is the misery that there is in being lost. But the second, and listen to this, the second is the joy God has in finding us. The misery there is in being lost, and then the joy which God has in finding us. So let's look at these two things. First of all, the son's misery in being lost. You know, this son didn't think he was headed for misery when he turned his back on his father. Maybe he thought it was misery to stay, but he took his money and he was off. He took his share, and with the law of the land in that place at that time, there were two sons, but he didn't get half. He only got a third. Maybe he thought it was misery to stay. Maybe he thought that since he wasn't getting as much as his brother was to get, then he'd better take it sooner rather than later, a bird in the hand. You see, it was freedom he was looking for, and freedom he believed he had found. At last, he was his own man. He could go where he pleased. He could spend his money on what he pleased. Frankly, he could do as he pleased. Surely life doesn't get much better. Many of us have thought that, only to find that it doesn't quite follow. Or how many of us have, been, have had broken hearts over family members who we've seen going where they pleased and spending their money on what they pleased and doing as they pleased. Do you know, I guess that sometimes they may need to do that in order for God to deal with them. But be careful. If you're tempted by that, that ain't no excuse. So here we are, this son thinking that life didn't get much better, but misery didn't take long to find him. Look at verses 13 and 14. First the money ran out, then famine came. You know, he'd walked all that way. He'd walked to a distant country, a country free from his father, a country free from duty, a country, quite frankly, free from him having to be the wee brother. And he'd walked right into a famine. 
No more would he be able to depend on the wisdom of his father, who would have put stocks aside for just such a time. No more would he be able to depend on his wider family who would pull together to get through such a time. Oh, freedom he had for sure, but responsibility was a new learning curve altogether. As if that wasn't enough, humiliation came his way. Verse 15, the only job he could find was tending pigs unclean animals to a Jew. And if humiliation wasn't enough, then came the hunger. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything to eat. He was reliant on others for food. That reliance tells us that he wasn't just facing the humiliation of tending pigs, but also of only being the assistant tender of pigs. Even here, he couldn't escape the junior role, always the wee brother. Humiliation, hunger, and then homesickness in verses 17 and 18. And it's the homesickness that brings him I guess, to a turning point. He'd had a number of turning points in his life. One of them was a maximum. He'd reached the top. Things were actually good, and he decided to walk out on it and leave his father, and he turned, and life went downhill. And maybe verse 13, as it describes how he lived, tells us that he'd been through some of those turning points that are really just kind of wavering points, when you're kind of on the way down, and you think, oh, this isn't good and you, you could just turn, and you could, things could get better again, but actually, they just go down even further. Just a momentary waver. Maybe you've known those yourself, uh, when you know the way you should turn. But what with the pressures around about you, it's just too hard to make the turn, and just too easy to keep going down. He'd had turning points already, but now, He's hit rock bottom. Rock bottom could be the best turning point you ever reach because the only way is up. You see, now he realizes he's got it all wrong. He'd gone his own way, but it hadn't worked out. It had actually been better at home, so there was nothing else for it. With a maddening mix of reluctance and resolve, he sets out to go home to his father. I wonder, do you recognize that behavior in one whom you love? Maybe they've not reached that point yet. I'll pray on. But how about you? Do you recognize that situation in your own life? Are you beginning to hit rock bottom? Are you beginning to sense that it's time to turn? This young man had reached an end of himself. And I wonder if God is taking you there as well. This young man had reached an end of himself, but the further he had fallen, the clearer was his vision of the root of all his problems. And it wasn't just poor decision-making. For he sees that he has sinned. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
and against you. He sinned against heaven, and he sinned against his Father. But the question he really faces is, what is he going to do about it? Will he repent of his sin? Well, he decides that he will go home. He decides that it's time to repent. It's, he decides it's time to confess his sin. And not expecting much in return, he has a cunning plan. He will ask to become like one of his father's hired men. Now, you know, it's all too easy to see how he has sinned against his father. He demanded his inheritance as if his father were dead. He walked out on the family business, which depended on him. And he caused the breakup of the family estate so he could get his money. It's easy to see how he sinned against his father, but sinned against heaven? Sinned against God? How so? Well, whenever we turn our back and walk our own way, no matter what it involves or who gets hurt in the process, it is always a sin, for we are putting ourselves first. And the Bible tells us, and we need to be clear, when the Bible tells us this, it flies in the face of everything that our contemporary society is telling us. The Bible tells us that to put ourselves first is wrong. And why? because it breaks the first commandment. It is God who is to be first in our lives. You shall have no other gods before me. At the end of the day, what is said from this pulpit always relates to God and His glory and not to any thoughts or philosophies or fashions. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, this man's sin had led him into humiliation and hunger and homesickness. But truly, the point which he has reached, the point which he has been brought to, is not a point of humiliation, nor is it a point of hunger, nor is it a point of homesickness. For he has been brought, and this can only be the action of God in his life, he has been brought to a point of repentance. More than knowing that he has sinned, he admits it, and that he admits that something has to be done about it. He has reached a point of repentance. I wonder, do you know the difference? To put ourselves first and God second, if at all, well, that's the very definition of sin and being a sinner. And, you know, I think that really any one of us could be honest. I certainly can and put my hand up and say, that describes me. But to be a repentant sinner, well, that's a whole lot different. You see, it's not enough to recognize our situation. There has to be a change of heart. But God enables us to do that also. And it is the change of heart in this young man which allows us to uncover the second point in this parable, God's joy in the repentant sinner. God's joy in finding the repentant sinner.
probably one of the greatest lies that's ever told is that time heals all wounds. Do you think this father ever got over the way his son had acted? Do you think there was never a day when he longed for his son to be home again? Can you imagine him looking up from the plow, wiping his brow, still wondering, really not knowing, why had his son walked out? The sight was etched on his mind. It was the back of his son as he'd walked, no, as he'd swaggered away, his possessions on his shoulders. Perhaps what hurt the most was that he hadn't looked back. I wonder how often this father stood at the entrance to his house, looking out across the yard, looking over the fields that were now tended by someone else because he's had to sell them to him to give his son his inheritance. But then, one day, he looked up and he saw him. Yes, it was him, a figure in the distance, changed but unmistakably the same. Oh, stooped a little, not looking in the peak of fitness, but unmistakable. And this time, this time he was walking towards the house. The figure of the boy, grown into a youth, now into a young man, and it's unmistakable. It's my son, he shouts. It's my son. He's coming home. I wonder, did he call over his shoulder to his wife as he ran? Did his servant understand why the robe was thrust into his hand with the command that he catch his master up? It's my guess that the chief servant was already ahead of the game. The fattened calf was already being led to the slaughter. The fire was already lit. He threw his arms around his son. The boy was accepted. He kissed his son. The boy was forgiven. And then came the words, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Oh, that was the speech he had prepared, and it stumbled in shame from his lips. The shame of what he had done, and the shame of not knowing how to react to his father's steadfast love. His father had run to him. In the culture of the day, that didn't happen. That was unseemly. His father had run to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But he didn't get the chance to say the bit about becoming like one of his father's hired men. Why not? Well, here's my take on it. I hope that by now you've worked out that the figure uh, of the Father in this parable represents God. And God welcomes home repentant sinners, but when He does so, He welcomes them as sons and daughters. He welcomes them into His family. 
Why didn't the boy get the chance to say the bit about becoming a hired man? Because God has no hired men, only sons. In passing, can I say that we are never more wrong than when we think that we can be, even from the best of motives, one of God's hired men, that we can hire ourselves out to Him contractually, that we can come and go at the end of our shift, that He can have just so much of us, just so much of our time or our talents or our labor, just so much of our gifts or our money or whatever. He will not have that from us. He will have our all. God has not signed us up for part of the day. He's brought us into His family. He's made us His sons and His daughters. We are His all day, every day. The episode which tees up this whole chapter is the exchange with the Pharisees in verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees, you see, were concerned for themselves and their beliefs and their standing in society. They were concerned for their power. They were concerned for their influence. Frankly, they were only as hired men to God. In verse 2, the Pharisees derided Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you see the smile on Luke's face as he writes down their words? They spoke down at Jesus. They derided Jesus. They condemned Jesus. But Luke takes up their very own words for the truth of them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yes, that's just it. That's just exactly what he does. And so then Luke gives us these three stories from Jesus. The sheep that has wandered is brought back into the fold, and there is rejoicing in heaven. The coin that is lost is found, and there is rejoicing in heaven. The son who has willfully gone his own way and is lost is found. The father runs to him. The best robe is put upon him. The fattened calf is killed for him, and the father's house erupts in rejoicing. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You bet he does. Now, just a word about the older brother. Remember him from verse 25 onwards? He was pretty put out about all that singing and dancing and partying, wasn't he? All fair enough to welcome home someone who repents, but do we really need to celebrate? Look at the behavior that he displays in verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. When we see our loved ones turn back, when we see them repent, we rejoice, don't we? But is there part of us that rankles? I've been here all this time. I've been here all these years. I've been committed, I've kept the faith, I've served the Lord, I've served His church. He doesn't deserve all that attention. Oh, for sure, the faithful go unnoticed. 
But isn't that what God calls them to? The humility of service. Many of you will know the passage in Philippians 2, at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, it says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But, but read further down that chapter in Philippians, and pick up the message at, uh, at, chapter, at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. One last thing regarding the older brother. He was angry and refused to go in. But look at how his father dealt with him. Just as his father had gone out to the younger son, he now goes out to the older son. What love. What commitment. This son who'd stayed at home also had some repenting to do. A message there for the faithful. Luke has told us three of Jesus' parables. One sheep, lost, then found, and the rejoicing which followed. One coin, lost, then found, and the rejoicing which followed. And now one son, lost, found, right. Like this younger son, maybe you're going your own way. But want to be found. Is the sound of rejoicing attractive? Let me tell you that the Father, God the Father, is still the one who will come out to you. He is still the one who is ready to welcome you, not as a hired man or woman, but as his son, as his daughter, into his family. Or maybe you're in the family, but your behavior is a bit like the older brother. Maybe you've a bit of repenting to do. Well, let me remind you, your Father, your Heavenly Father, will still come out to you. Billy Graham died this year at the grand old age of 99. For decades, he had preached to millions, telling them they're lost, telling them God has come to find them, telling them they must be born again, asking them all the same question, will you repent? of your sin. Well, will you? Let's pray together.